Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the October edition of Prospect hits the stands, we're talking about the character thing. Just how much difference, or not, do the human quirks of an individual leader or thinker make? But what's, I think, heartening and interesting as we watch Trump's executive orders try to kind of put into practice his nativist rhetoric is the mobilisation of the forces against that. To discuss the great human theory of ideas and events, I'm delighted to welcome to our pod three splendid human specimens. Wendell Stevenson, who is a globetrotting journalist who's reported from right around the world, but has this month written for us about whether or not America's open-armed tradition towards immigrants can survive the personality of Donald J. Trump. Alongside her, the philosopher and biographer Ray Monk, who's made a career out of linking great minds with great lives, but this month has written for us about one of the greatest minds of the lot, Gottlob Frege, who turns out to have lived in a husk of a man. And then last but not least, we've got the former cabinet minister, Andrew Adonis, who has a big theory for us about who wins elections. It always comes down, so he claims, to the personality of the leaders. So a warm welcome to you all. And let's start, um, Andrew, uh, with you and your decidedly um, provocative essay. Forget the whole industry of polls and cephology, you say. If you want to forecast any election, simply look at the leaders. Well, what I've done is to look at leaders in Britain, America, France and Germany in elections since the war and to take out the results and simply give them points on two dimensions. Firstly, their leadership capability and secondly, the degree to which they express and represent the spirit of the times. And if you do that, you get an uncanny correlation between the uh, the strength of the leader and uh, their likelihood of uh, winning an election. And now in some elections where it's very close, like Nixon, Kennedy in 1960, or Wilson, Heath, then um, the leadership points often are too close to call. Yeah. But it, where, where they're not too close to call, the winner is almost... Uh, invariably the winner of the election and a very interesting point which I hadn't realized I started going through the, uh, the the figure seriously but which is bears out the leadership thesis is that leaders who lose a first election almost never win a second the only two exceptions are 
in the United States, Richard Nixon, but it's perfectly possible that Richard Nixon actually won the 1960 election. We don't quite know what was going on in Cook mm. County and, uh, and with Mayor Daley in Chicago. And the other one is Ted Heath in 1970. But that was um, Wilson's third election. So he was distinctly jaded by then. Mm. And that was, that was an unusual case, which I think seems to bear out the argument that uh, it's the strength of the leader that matters. The crucial point, though, which was a breakthrough in my thinking of this, was um, the Guardian journalist Jonathan Friedland, who wrote a column a few years ago, which said that uh, people don't believe in ideas, they believe in people who believe in ideas. So this is not to say that ideas and policies don't matter, it's to say that the selection of the ideas and the presentation of the policies and the choice of policies that leaders make is an absolutely crucial part of their uh, leadership personality, and the two can't be seen uh, uh, as distinct. And already you've got some of the people you probably expected wouldn't be impressed by this in terms of um, political scientists and so on who are saying, oh, you're picking out leaders who won the election after the event um, or you're you know, biased. How are you dealing with that? Well, the more interesting one is actually the political scientists as ever, because I used to be a political scientist, are divided into two groups, those who completely agree and those who completely disagree. Some say that they've been saying this for years and it's nothing new. Mm. Others are saying that, of course, it's a complete load of um, uh, of rubbish (laughs) and uh, there are very complicated equations which explain why. But that hasn't been the the, uh, ferocity of the reaction. The the ferocious reaction has come from the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn Mm. because of the point I made, which is my... My secondary point, that those who lose first elections don't win second elections because, of course, they're absolutely determined that (laughs) their guy is going to be around in four years' time and is going to win the election. So this is a a treacherous, because I'm, of course, a a Labour member of the House of Lords. I've now been uh, held up as committing high treason by suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn, because he's lost the first election, isn't going to win the second. And they're saying that he is going to be the exception which proves the rule. Well, we'll know in four years' time, and maybe I should uh, have a repeat outing in Prospect magazine when we can uh, establish the facts. (laughs) Ray, um, you've written a lot of biography, which I guess means that you see a big role for the individual character and individual life in um, shaping things. Could you imagine, like, do you find this persuasive? Could you imagine it, everything boiling down to personality? Uh, there's an obvious problem with the methodology, which is what you've just alluded to, which is you've been assigning these leadership points on elections that have already happened. Did you, I mean, the, the figures that you give for May and Corbyn, did you give those figures before the recent election? No, I only wrote the article last month. Right. Um, but it, if I'd been giving the figures before, I would, of course, have given Theresa May a much larger yeah. lead. Yeah. But, of course, the, the point is that we didn't actually know quite what she was like as a leader until the campaign started. Yeah. She hadn't been tested before. Yeah. And that's my judgment as to where she got to by the end. Yeah. Are you tempted to, to, to make predictions rather than to, you know? I have made some predictions in mm. the article, actually. I've said that if Ruth Davidson were leading the Conservatives, she would definitely beat Jeremy Corbyn because on any assessment of leadership points, she'd be ahead. Yeah. And that if Hillary Clinton stood against... Um, Trump for a second time, she would lose. Right. And you Same also leadership said that, failings. That, that Jeremy Corbyn again. would probably be able to beat Jacob Rees Mogg. Oh, yeah, I said that if Jacob Rees Mogg, who I give even fewer leadership points than Jeremy <laughs> has, uh, and um, I, that may have boosted his leadership chances yeah. significantly. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting this business of leadership points. I, I, I mean, it's, could, could you. Sp- Spell out in more detail how the points are, are given. Ten points for innate qualities, right. so persuasiveness, yeah. charisma, um, uh, capacity to, um, uh, to forge teams and so on. And then five points for the degree to which, which the leader expresses or represents the, um, the spirit of the times. Uh, and right. so, for, for example, somebody like, it's quite interesting, the trio of leaders in the 1940s, Attlee, uh, Truman and Adenauer, who are remarkably similar very uncharismatic, but very 
impressive executive leaders and their very lack of charisma but strength of executive leadership and strong commitment to rebuilding states which had been ravaged by war and all that completely expressed the spirit of the 1940s, which is why in 1945 I give uh, give Attlee more leadership points than Churchill by one. Though, of course, if the election in had taken place in 1940, the one that's cancelled in the middle of the war, obviously it would have been uh, Churchill ahead by miles. Yeah, yeah. Wendell, um, like Prospect, styles itself sometimes as a a magazine of ideas, Uh, but the big idea here is that ideas don't matter a jot unless, at least not until they're mediated by by a person. How should we feel about that? Well, I think what was interesting about Andrew's article was um, the how do you know before an election during a campaign to what extent a leader is connecting with the spirit of the times? Because surely that connection is borne out by the relative popularity and by the ele- by the poll. So the trick is, yeah, it's great to look back with hindsight and you can retrospectively analyze this and apportion um, points as such. But how do you do it ahead of time? How does your theory of personality and particularly how you connect policy and ideas to an electorate um, help us understand what's going on during a campaign. Um, that was what's, I think, been tricky. Because I was also thinking about it, how does this relate in terms of leadership with the referenda recently, whether it's Scotland or EU? Because um, particularly in the EU, it was mm. characterised less, by, you know, not so much by leaders except for by ideas and by points and by numbers that were quite often cross-hatched or contradictory. Um, but in some ways it was a campaign that was very important but without without obvious leaders well i think the uh, the leave campaign did have two very strong leaders didn't it boris johnson and nigel farage who represented the the spectrum of the leave arguments um and the remain campaign unfortunately also had two strongly associated leaders david cameron and george osborne and the problem was that uh, mm. johnson and farage won that particular battle didn't they so i think i hadn't really thought about referenda but e- even in that case i think you can probably bring it down to um to the leaders but on the point about the predictive capacity where i completely accept that there's a problem is where the leaders are fairly finely matched and i don't pretend to be able to predict then but where one leader is very clearly superior to another it's pretty obvious i mean in the run-up to the 2008 presidential election in the u.s you didn't need to um, uh, have a a very sophisticated modeling system to see that uh, that barack obama was both the better leader than john mccain and also manifestly in the wake of uh, the economic crash Mm. expressed the spirit of the times better and similarly you know i I, I worked for tony blair and in the run-up to the 1997 election it was equally clear that he was both the better leader and clearly expressed the spirit of the times about decaying public services remember his great line tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime and the way he he dealt with the James Bolger death as a, as a big commentary on the social disintegration of, um, of society. So I think what's, what's clear is that where you've got one leader who is clearly superior to the other, you can tell in a predictive way. And it leads me to my the, uh, the only advice coming out of this that I would give to those looking for leaders, which mm. is because, of course, in a predictive way, you can only tell that one leader is likely to beat another if they are clearly superior you should look at the leaders who are on offer and go for without any hesitation at all the one who is head and shoulders better so in a 1992 situation you shouldn't go for your john smith 
who uh, is a safe pair of hands, but you don't know how they might cope with John Major, you should go straight to your Tony Blair, or in the case of the US, your Barack Obama, because you should take no chances whatsoever on having a weaker leader and whether they might or might not win, but go straight to your strongest uh, suit immediately and then hope that you can organise things around them in terms of programmes and policies, which will help you win. But uh, that all may be a uh, step too far. Because as you say, like, Anything that someone like you says on this is going to be seen in terms of, you know, Blairite, anti-Corbynites by some people who are out there. But would you say if there were a really strong and charismatic leader who was from the part of the Labour Party that Jeremy Corbyn is from, could they be ahead on this measure? Could they storm Downing Street? And if you look at how weak Theresa May was as a leader at the last election, I think if the the left had had... um, a figure like, I can't really think, because we, we don't have a tradition. A of, sort of Nye Bevan type figure. And Nye Bevan would be a perfect case. Nye Bevan would have beaten Theresa May. Yes, that's a figure. Sanders Nye. would have beaten Trump. Yes, I do, actually. Yes, much, much closer, better representative of the spirit of the times. And given how close it was, it's very notable that the, the famous states, the, you know, the Pennsylvanias and... Um, yeah, the Rust Belt. Rust Belt. Yeah. Bernie Sanders had won in the primaries. He beat, he trounced uh, Clinton in those states. Uh, and he clearly um, uh, was a barnstorming performer as well. So whereas she turned out to be both a very weak performer. And we knew that she was going to be a weak leader because she'd, she'd fought a pretty lacklustre campaign for the primary nomination against Barack Obama eight years before, hadn't she? So, um, so apart from the kind of Trump charisma and the telegenic stuff, what do you think was p- the part of his message that connected? What was the spirit of the times that he managed to articulate? The, his appeal to the dispossessed. I mean, amazingly, he managed to invent himself as a, as a spokesman of Which is, which is completely counterintuitive because he seems to, you know, he's a New York apparent billionaire in, in, in you know, in but brackets. But he clearly, he'd uh, done the polling, worked out that uh, the blue-collar America, uh, you know, was uh, was feeling poor and, and poorer and blaming Washington. And his message all along was, uh, was one of uh, being the outsider who would speak for the outsiders, wasn't it? Because there's also part of the equation that I talk about, the sort of nativist rhetoric... Um, the us and them, the keep the foreigners out, the refugees out, the wall, etc., that seemed to find some kind of purchase or traction during the campaign, but seemed completely counterintuitive to his personality, which is sort of like, an, I mean, he's a New York Democrat, really. I mean, he started off as a New York Democrat, not a natural, mm. um, you know, reactionary GOP mm. down-home country boy. So personalities in politics can fake it. But let's move now from personalities in politics to individuals in ideas. Um, now, Ray, your celebrated biographies of both Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein, you've sort of looked from the ideas to the life and, 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 and back again. And so we set you this task of looking into the life of Gottlob Frege. Now, um, we're a general interest uh, magazine rather than um, a philosophy um, uh, journal. So first of all, just tell us why Frege's ideas matter. Well, Frege uh, has been called the grandfather of the analytic tradition. Um, the dominant tradition in philosophy in English-speaking countries has been the analytic tradition, which has which has sought to make philosophy rigorous and sought to uh, make logic and particularly mathematical logic central to uh, philosophy. Frege was a great mathematician who more or less invented the kind of logic we now teach to our undergraduates. And he wrote some 
very influential ph- philosophical articles and a very influential philosoph- uh, philosophical book. Which and you say that they're more revered now in philosophical circles than either Russell or of Wittgenstein. Of the three, Russell, Wittgenstein and Frege, Frege is the most respected by contemporary philosophers right. uh, because of the rigour of his thought uh, and because he hasn't become unfashionable like, like Wittgenstein has uh, and like Russell did um, during Wittgenstein's lifetime. So uh, Frege is, is revered, I would say, by contemporary philosophers. His work is regarded as a model to which they aspire. Right. Um, but, um, it, you know, biographically, he, he turned out to be uh, a disappointment. <laughs> um, and uh, did that sort of surprise you? I mean, did, did, you, did you come from a school of thought before that said that if someone's got a, a mind that can do amazing and creative things, there's... They're probably complex and interesting. That's interesting. Uh, no, I wouldn't have said that because, you know, there are some notorious examples in, in the history of philosophy. Immanuel Kant is nobody's idea of, you know, an exciting and interesting personality. Uh, but, you know, one of the most important philosophers in the history of the subject. So it's not surprising that there exists such individuals. I didn't realise, I don't think, two things. One, how dull Frege was, and two, how little survives... Uh, that would give any indication of his personality at all. And so someone did get a biography, an official biography out of his papers, uh, 600 pages, pages, and I think, I don't think it's in the piece, but I think you said to me on the phone, there's only um, one anecdote in there, really. Well, I, I mean, there's so little that gives any indication of his personality that, that, that poor old Kreiser was, was, you know, had to, to clutch at straws, and one such straw is a story about... Uh, a family who rented part of Frege's house and uh, uh, they, they, they reported that um, Frege once went to see them because he was worried that they'd gone so quiet and was worried and, and had guessed correctly that their child was ill. Um, it's such an uninteresting anecdote, you know, but it's one of the very few things that gives any indication of Frege's personality. The, the, you know, there, there are no letters in which his personality shines forth. His philosophical cor- correspondence with, with Husserl and, and Russell has been preserved. And it's, uh, you know, from a philosophical point of view, it's very interesting. But the only indication you get of his character in mm. those letters and in the reviews that he wrote and sometimes in his articles and books... Um, he comes over as, as as slightly pedantic and crabby and difficult, you know. Mm. But there's there's remarkably little, and and in this biography, we have pages and pages of of background, a long discussion about the variations in the price of wheat in nineteenth century Germany and things like that. Just to you know, because there's so little. And uh, you say when uh, Wittgenstein sent him the Tractatus in this elaborate propositional architecture, he just sends it back and says, "Why don't you publish it as seven different?" academic papers. Wittgenstein was hugely disappointed. The one person he wanted to show his book Tractatus Logico Philosophicus to was Frege. He managed to get it to Frege against all the odds when Wittgenstein was still a prisoner of war, actually. He was an Italian prisoner of war at the time. Uh, He got the book to Frege and Frege, as Wittgenstein then said to Russell, didn't understand a word of it, took the first sentence. There's no indication that Frege read past the first page. Um, He took the first sentence and and wrote several letters worrying away at how uh, one might, uh, in a very precise way, understand this sentence. Um, Andrew, I know from your article and that you spend quite a lot of time reading political biographies. I also know that you're writing one at the moment. Um, where do you stand on this question? Does it trouble you, this idea that there could be someone who's great, whether on in ideas terms or maybe in, in, in terms of your political points, and yet they're not very interesting? There's not much to them. 
I, I thought that um, Ray's article was really interesting, actually, because it raised an issue which has often been on my mind just for observing history, which is often figures of genius are, are profoundly uninteresting. I mean, Mozart, who must be the greatest, in my view, the greatest composer who ever lived, his life is uh, is extraordinarily uh, um, uninteresting, and we actually don't know a huge amount about it. I mean, we mm. did, mm. and he died very young. Right. In politics, often many of those, I mean, we actually saw it in our, our last election here when, as somebody famously said of Theresa May, it was the first time in history somebody had tried to um, run a personality cult on a non-personality. I mean, it's often political leaders too. There isn't actually a huge amount to them in, in terms of their personal life and, and their life is their work and there really isn't anything else too. Thatcher but what, perhaps would be... Thatcher, uh, but Thatcher did have a bit more personality. But then equally, uh, I mean... Bertrand Russell was an extraordinary character. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, one of the most larger-than-life figure, yeah. figure yeah. And a, a man of immense humanity yeah. and personality. Yeah. Um, and people still talk about him in the House of Lords. And a great prose stylist, so, so his personality shines through in everything he wrote, um, in, including his letters. You know. And Beethoven was an enormous, yeah. was an Enlightenment yeah. figure of, of extraordinary uh, yeah. range of versatility. Yeah. So, it's the, 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 the contrast between life and work is is a long-running theme in history, isn't it? It is. I, I, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Beethoven. Wittgenstein once said, um, you know, of Beethoven, that's the sort of man to be, <laughs> you know. And it's interesting, you know, not, not this is the music one should listen to, but that's the man you should be. And he said about Shakespeare uh, that he found it very difficult to read Shakespeare's plays because he couldn't see the man in the work. Wendell, um, we've been a bit too dismissive of um, Frege's personality so far because we do get a bit of detail which is certainly something of a chauvinist and a maybe a bit of a proto-nazi anti-semitic that kind of thing um does it trouble you if there's someone whose art or ideas you admire and then they've got really horrible views it's tricky isn't it it's hard to separate the admiration for the work for the admiration of the man but I think that you want to know everything. I think you want to know as much as possible. I think that people are not necessarily one-dimensional and they have different conflicting ideas. Their ideas change, their life changes. What was interesting to me reading your Frege article was the idea that he would make a separation between a life's work in looking f to explain and organise the logic of mathematics. But yet when it came to politics, he thought that it should be an emotional response and not a logical mm. proposition. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was very peculiar. He was deeply anti-Semitic, wasn't he? So we do know he, a bit about he, him. He was, uh, but as Wendell mm. said, I mean, not only do his views seem irrational and, and that horrified Michael Dummett, the Oxford philosopher who so admired Frege, but also he explicitly says that political views shouldn't be arrived at purely rationally, that, that, mm. um, that he thought prejudice in the form of, of patriotism was, was a good thing. The fact that it was prejudice, it was unreasoning, that it had an element of irrationality in it, you would think would offend him as a logician, but actually he, he, uh, he applauds it. How did he square those two positions? Who knows? I, I, in, in, we have this, this fragment of a diary from 1924 which has these you know, offensive uh, political opinions in it. The first thing that strikes one is, well, this is a funny thing for a logician to be saying. Uh, but disappointingly, he doesn't reflect or try to square his love of logic and rationality in the area of philosophy and mathematics and his willingness to tolerate irrationality in the area of politics. It, it, it is, as you say, a very striking tension. It's almost uh, like two different rooms in yeah. the same mm -hmm. house. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember yeah. reading an um, interview once with Enoch Powell in which he'd published a book which was 
disproving effectively the, the the evidential basis for lots of the Bible and saying, oh, only one of the Gospels, Luke, maybe has got any documentary evidence to support it, and the rest of it was just um like made up. And then he said, has this changed? And he'd taken the time to do this and and, and demonstrate the argument. And then he was asked, has it changed um the way you think about the Bible at all? And he said, oh no. Because I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an Anglican first and only a scholar second, and it's a bit like that, isn't it? I, I mean, you you might be tempted to to invoke, a, you know, an idea that's associated with with David Hume, which is that reason is and should be, as Hume puts it, a slave of the passions, and and that you you, you know you look to your passions to decide your ends and your reason to decide the means by which you achieve those ends, and you, but that's not going to quite work with Frege because it's not just that he. Uh, doesn't think reason is going to tell you which political views to hold. He thinks that it's perfectly acceptable, indeed admirable, to hold views that are not only irrational but irrational. Well, there's no surer way to personalise current affairs than by following a family through the tumult, which, Wendell, is um, what you've done in tracking the Mastos from Syria and Lebanon and onto Ohio. Who are they? They're a family that I first met in Beirut about a year and a half ago. Um, I was in Lebanon and I wanted to write a story about Syrian refugees, um, mindful of the fact that, you know, it's a story that's been very written. It's a st- refugee stories can get a little bit repetitive and this sort of repeated trauma and so forth. But this was then five or six years into a conflict with no end in sight. And I wanted to understand a little bit about what the experience of being in exile for that stretched amount of time, that amount of limbo, not knowing what was going to happen, um, felt like. And so I met the Masters because I was using um, food as a way to describe this kind of interim living. Should we stay? Should we go? Is this now our home? Do we wait to go home? How long do you wait to go home? And Ibtisim Master was making kibbe in the local farmer's market, and I got to know her and, and her family, um, six kids. Her husband had been a plumber in Lebanon, as many Syrians were before the war. And after they came from Idlib province, from a town called Jisra Shukur. And after sort of a year and a half or two years of very bad violence there, they finally, she fled with her six children to Lebanon. And they had been recently um, uh, set, told that they were going to be resettled in America. And I remember at the end of our discussion and talk, they kind of looked at me and said, you know, with with questions, you know, is this, how is that going to be for us? You know, is it going to be okay? What what should we expect? And I looked at this family, which was very conservative, religious family. Um, Not a single one of them spoke a word of English between them. And I thought, yeah, I wonder how this is going to be, how this is entry. So a year goes by, they were resettled in Cincinnati. This is before Trump was elected. And I kept kept in touch with them, you know, via Facebook and Google Translate. And I wanted to go and check in with them and see how it was going. And then Trump was elected in the meantime. And so this June, mm-hmm. um, I went to Cincinnati and checked back in. And there they were in a house in Cincinnati. Um, they opened the door. It was Ramadan. Um, it was dusk. And so it was the hour of iftar. And, and they were all big smiles on their face, you know, food... Ibtisam had made this incredible feast. Um, and I spent a week with them and other Syrian families relocated in Cincinnati and a, and a great, um, lots of different organizations and volunteers and people around them who mm. were helping and um, helping to organize their resettlement and integration and began to sort of understand the, the economics, the personalities, the difficulties and complications of what happens when a refugee family lands in the middle of America and in the middle of Trump America. And um, 
now, all this time on, how, how, in summary, would you say they were faring? I mean, one thing that came through from your piece, I thought, is that the young and the old are a very different story. It's a story. classic coming to America story. In some ways, you know, the Masto's journey echoes the journey of, you know, immigrants and refugees for the last 150 years and more that have come to America, which is to say that the youngest thrive the most easily. You know, the six-year-old... Um, was the most fluent, the most easy, had the the, the accent, the, the say, accent yeah. already down. And the elder kids um, were um, catching up, but were always, you, know, you could tell, you know, with Syrian accents was sort of more halting. And the adults, it was harder. It mm. was tougher. There was a sort of, particularly for the father, Muhammad, who, you know, as he said to me through a translator, you know, how can I learn English? He said, I'm, you know, I can't even read and write in my own language, Arabic. So when he had first come and they'd given him English lessons, he couldn't understand them because he couldn't read the English. He didn't know how to read even Arabic. So even the idea of letters and words and phrases you know, wasn't clear to him. And I realized that it's different being an immigrant and a refugee. And this idea, I think, that Americans have of refugees coming into their country, that it, they should be grateful um, is a bit tricky because... The refugees don't really want to be there. They just don't have any other place to go. And they've obvious, they've often been resettled there through the UN. It might not have been their first choice. The masters, I remember originally saying to me, you know, America, really? Do they like Muslims there? Isn't this going to be a problem? You know, Canada, Germany, maybe. You know, they had friends and family in these places. But America seemed to be a, a more awkward proposition to them. And yet, I mean, America, of course, is some, like, known always for absorbing people from different religions, originally different Christian sects, but more recently from every type of religion. It's been multicultural for much longer, Andrew, than anywhere else. I thought it was a fascinating article. What I particularly latched onto is the fact they were in, when you went to see them, they were in their second house. And it's a classic story. My, my dad came from Cyprus in the 50s speaking no English. And so it's a very similar story. And this, there is actually the overlap between an immigrant and a refugee. Is I don't know whether he would have called himself a refugee. He was escaping from what was essentially a civil war taking place in Cyprus in the 50s. So he, he, I don't think he would have understood the distinction between the two. He didn't intend to stay. They, he came with all his brothers, intended to stay here for a, a year or two till the war ended. It was a war against the British. The only place they knew where to go when they to get out was Britain. So it was a sort of irony wrapped in an irony, whatever <laughs> that is. Um, but the crucial thing for him about getting established was moving into his sec- second home. And, you know, the first one, round the quite close to here, actually, in Mornington Crescent, was a, a, a basically a slum tenement block, of which there were lots in London then in the 50s. And he was rehoused by the council into a, a pristine new block of council flats. Mm. And it's when he got his flats, with its three bedrooms and its central heating and all of that, that his life took a massive and dramatic turn. And the, the, uh, that house, which you've got the photo of by the article in, in Cincinnati, with the, with the backyard and the front garden, and they're all established there, I thought, aha, they're now 50% integrated. <laughs> you know, now they've got themselves a place that they recognise as home, which you know they're all settled in. And they it's... were, yeah, they were very happy that that was that was very clear because when they first arrived, the terms of the resettlement means that there's essentially refugees are given a place to live, and so they don't have a choice, and they land in a place they don't know the lie of the land, they don't know the neighbourhood, and they also haven't chosen the house, and so when they were able to, I think having the volition to choose where you live is is, is part of. Um, but integration is tough. I mean, there's a language thing and then there's a cultural thing. It's easier for the kids, but also for the kids as children of very conservative religious parents. I think it's going to be difficult. They're going through high school. You know, Muhammad, the father, had already, while I was there, confiscated his teenage daughter's telephones. And, you know, I think that 
being there, getting on, getting through the the issues of employment and school and ticking boxes and figuring out how to live and so forth is one thing. Feeling at home there is different. And it was clear talking to both the parents that, you know, they had a lot of misgivings, but they were doing this for their children, that they knew that for them this was always going to be an awkward and difficult proposition that they had friends, it would get easier, they, they had hope, but it, you know, they both said to me, this is for the children. Ray? I, I, was, I was heartened by your piece, by how much kindness and support and helpfulness me, they made. Me too, me too. I, I thought this was going to be a story about them arriving in, you know, in America at just the wrong moment and being victims of the, the kind of anti-immigration rhetoric that, mm. that Trump has. But um, you know, several times in the story, they meet kind and helpful people who are determined to welcome them. And, a and lot along the way. And I talked to many of them. And of course, it was a slightly self-selecting yeah, group that I ended yeah. up talking to people who had helped them. Therefore, yeah. I was talking to helpful people. Yeah. And anecdotally, you know, they said one of the daughters told me, you know, that she'd had, you know, she wears a hijab and a headscarf out in public, and that she'd been called names on the bus. And you know, there's some complications and problems and so forth but it was yeah it was really heartening to me Mm. that that spirit of welcoming and Americans welcoming new Americans you know was very much there and it happened to me actually on the first night I arrived I arrived late in a rainstorm I had a terrible Airbnb room that wasn't kind of comfortable at all and one of their volunteers Carol when I explained to her my predicament she said well you know we've got an extra room, come home with me. Mm. And I spent the week staying with Carol and her husband, Steve. And I just thought this is the most extraordinary Midwest, (laughs) the Midwest, you know, hospitality was really alive and well. This is something that, you know, I was born in New York and spent a lot of time living there. It's not any (laughs) East Coast. You're making very big commitments, didn't you? Because when you arrive at the house... There's the uh, is the lady from the University of Cincinnati who does all the translating. Mm, yeah, you know, I mean a big clearly played a big part in their integration and yeah, and there were lots of them. there were several people like that who were close to them and who were you know doctors' appointments and filling out forms because if you can't read or speak English very well, you know even a telephone bill is a complication. Filling out tax returns, getting the kids into school, so, all of so, this so stuff. So there's a lot that needs to be done. But mm. does it make you think? I mean, we've had like this extraordinary high-profile and divisive um, Trump run for the presidency and then he's continued in his first, not quite year yet, as president to use it to continue that campaign. It looks like the personalities, um, however big it is, isn't big enough to have changed the culture well, that much. I mean, so we'll, far. we'll see. I mean, the Trump travel ban, you know, is still pending. The final decision on whether that stands legally is still pending by the Supreme Court. I think it's due sometime this autumn. But what's, I think, heartening and interesting as we watch Trump's executive orders try to kind of put into practice his nativist rhetoric is the mobilization of the forces against that of mayors declaring sanctuary cities of the huge demonstrations outside airports in in solidarity of judges of governors of politicians taking up the public stand against this um, legally politically and in terms of activism standing against it I think that's almost more of the story and hopefully fingers crossed turns out to be more decisive than than Trump. So yeah, hopefully the, the, the country can absorb this sort of... I, I, I just come back from the States myself. I spent uh, several months in the States and, and I was impressed actually. It's not just that Trump hasn't managed to kill that culture, but that there has been a reaction to Trump of people insisting on demonstrating that they're still welcoming of, uh, you know, and, and people coming out. And I was in, in, I was in Santa Fe, which declared itself a, a sanctuary city and so on. So it's, 
he's actually, funnily enough, produced a kind of reaction that's, that's you know, the very opposite of the one he was trying to, try, trying to create. So a big personality might win an election, but they won't necessarily be able to reshape a country in their own image. On that note, let's uh, leave it there for this time. The October edition of Prospect uh, is in the shops now. It features these essays that we've discussed, as well as lots more, including Mary Beard on why libraries are sexy, Tim Martin on Stephen King's novels and why they don't work on the big screen, as well as a roadmap for how Brexit might, just might, be reversed. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye, and thanks very much for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.